Well, in the final analysis, the saying, it's not what you know, but who you know, is very true. Now, usually when you hear that expression, it's kind of negative, but today it's actually very positive. It's not really what you know, it's who you know. At the end of the day, intelligence, wealth, standing, performance, education won't help you a bit. But rather, what will help you is who you are connected to. Micah the prophet reminds the listener of his prophecy that what will save Israel is just that, her relationship to the covenant God Yahweh. That's what will save Israel, not her performance, not her obedience, not her wealth or her success or her education, but to whom she is connected. And so we've been looking at this book over the last few weeks and learned the truth over and over again that God will certainly course correct Israel. He'll also course correct and discipline us when we need it as well. That's why he's a good father. But ultimately, Israel will be blessed because God made promises to that nation. But rather, for now, in the present tense, change your mind now about your present bad choices so that way you can avoid negative consequences. And this is, in essence, the message of Micah for the Israelites 700 years before the time of Christ. But also there's application for us in the new covenant as believers that we can follow the same principles that are contained within this short prophecy. In chapter 7, which we started to look at two weeks ago, Israel will be blessed simply because, and this coincides well with the song that we just sang, the reason why Israel will be blessed ultimately is because of the character of God and what he does. His M.O., who he is and how he works. That's why Israel will ultimately be blessed That's also how New Covenant believers, us, will also be blessed. In the final analysis, that's really all we have is the character and the attributes of the God of Scripture. Israel will be blessed because of the character of God. She will get her land, but you properly grieve now because of your national sin. And that's why Micah began chapter 7 in great torment and even anxiety, because he saw everything falling apart around him. It was a little bit of hope with Hezekiah's reforms. Things got a little bit better, but it turned out to be the way like a dead person rallies in his or her final days and then ultimately dies. And that's kind of Israel. Um, Rallied for a little while under Hezekiah, but then Manasseh came And everything got even worse than it was before Hezekiah. Now, in the last seven verses of this little book, Micah offers a prayer to God. So he actually communicates to God. He says a prayer for his nation. God, will you, will you, will you be our shepherd? Will you guide us? Will you lead us once again? Please do it. Even though we're performing in a lousy fashion. So look what it says in verses 14 through 17 of Micah chapter 7, it says, Here, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest and fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. 
as in the days when you came out of Egypt. I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord your God. And so Micah asks God, God, please be our leader once again. And then God responds in verses 16 and 17. God answers this prayer. He prayed that God would actively shepherd his people once again. And God responded and said that I will do just that. Oh, God, for the land to be like Bashan and Gilead in the good old days when everything was green and lush and there was plenty of food for the livestock to eat. That's what we want again. God, we want prosperity. We want peace. God responded and he said, miracles will happen again. Wonders like I did for your people as I allowed them to escape Egyptian slavery. I divided the Red Sea. The people got out. But the chariots of the Egyptian army were swallowed up by the waves of the sea. I will do wonders like that for you once again. I will be in your midst, I will guide, I will lead you, and I will perform wonders. That is what I will do for you. And the hostile nations all around Israel will be shocked and dismayed. In fact, uh, Micah's contemporary, Isaiah, wrote this. He said, all the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. So you got Micah and Isaiah kind of team teaching, team prophesying here about pretty much the same thing. If this is, these are the promises that will be fulfilled for my people. I will give them what they need. The hostile nations around Israel will be shocked and ashamed. In fact, they will leak, lick the dust. And that's a figure of speech for absolute, total defeat and obliteration. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Micah's prayer is based upon God's already revealed words. What Micah wrote here, it's nothing new. In fact, it's quite repetitive. Israel's restoration is prophesied again and again and again in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament as well. In fact, about 25% of the prophetic books are about the ultimate fulfillment of even the guarantee of Israel's land. And that is in the thousand-year reign of Christ doesn't say the millennial kingdom in the Old Testament, but talks about the day, the capital D, day of the Lord, when God's people are blessed and God's enemies are vanquished. They've been given plenty of time to repent, plenty of time to change your way. And one point in time, God will ultimately judge. Why? Well, because he is a God who is just and is guaranteed that he will deal with human sin at some point in time. He's very patient He's a lot more patient than you and I would be, right? We would have blown the whole thing up by now. But God has been patient. And ultimately, this is what will be fulfilled. Israel's land will be given to it. 
and there'll be other nations as well, but it will be the only superpower that exists, not the current state of Israel that we see so much, but with a different government. It won't be a constitutional democracy, but it will be a theocratic monarchy where we have a king and perfect government, and we'll all participate in it, and we'll all love it. It won't be heaven, but it will be the closest thing that we will experience before heaven. And so Israel's restoration is prophesied again and again, and therefore what um, Micah is doing here is he's repeating this, the fulfillment of this promise. Um, it is God's declared obvious will. Don't miss that. And so what Micah did here is he prayed a prayer of petition. He prayed for his people. You could even say maybe it's intercession. He talked to God. That's what prayer is. Simple. The Hebrew word, the Greek word, means the same thing for prayer. It means talking to God. But how do we talk to God? Well, there are two basic types of prayer. There is first asking God for something. That's the first three. And then the second five are telling God something, different things. But prayer can be divided into those two things, those two categories. Either asking God for something for uh, a question, asking God for something for yourself, or asking God for something for someone or some other group of people. And so what Micah does here, you could say, uh, is petition and intercession combined because he's asking something for his people, but it definitely includes himself as well. And later on, we'll see an example of inquiry because he asks the question, um, who is God or who is like God? So it's a question. And all through Scripture, we see examples of narration where the biblical character is reporting to God what's going on, not asking God for anything, just kind of reporting what's going on. Job is a good example of that. Confession is the agreement with God about either our sin or about something positive, a truth. Scripture, I confess to you my sin, or I confess to you that I agree with you, God, about this. Praise is just like we give praise to our children or to a coworker or something like that, where we say something good about who they are or how they did something. That's praise. Thanksgiving is thanking someone for what they did or accomplished. Complaint prayer, that's kind of unusual. But we see that in the book of Lamentations. You might as well say it's the book of complaint. (laughs) Say, wow, I mean, I could, this opens up for us great vistas, you know, of prayer that we could complain. In fact, I would advocate stop complaining to your wife or your husband and complain to God. And the reason is because chances are your wife or your husband, you're, you're tired of hearing the complaints and they can't do anything about it anyway. And so complain to God all you want. It's not going to ruin his day. He can take it. So those are the different types of prayer. And so our hero here, Micah, our protagonist, is uh, using at least two of the three um, types of prayer that are first listed on the screen. So you and I are called to pray prayers that you know are in the will of God. Pray his perfect will. But let's pull back. 
and just talk for a couple of minutes about the idea of prayer. Because Jesus said, the reason why you don't have certain things is simply because you haven't asked me. And so looking at prayer from a broad stance, ask God for something. But then an important point in Bible interpretation is we have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We have to take things in context. And so what we do here is we first look at Scripture really broadly. And so ask God for something, but then Scripture begins to confine things. It begins to restrict the flow of our prayer and our attitude toward talking with God. And we are called to pray in selflessness. And so Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and both men go to pray. The tax collector prays to God, thank you, God, that I am not like these other people, that I am better than them, and I am a teacher of the law. But then the tax collector says, of all people, tax collectors, bottom rung down there with prostitutes, and and the, the teacher of the law is humble before God and turns out that our attitude in our prayer is really important. So we pray with selflessness, we pray in humility, and with correct motives. So this, this, this broad idea of prayer begins to constrict a little bit. Ask God, but have the right attitude in your prayer. But then another category yet constricts it even more. And we are called to pray in God's will. That doesn't mean we can't pray about things that aren't obviously in his will. But what God wants us to do in our prayer life with him is get on board with his agenda and a lot less with our agenda. John says this. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So when you pray something that's clearly in the will of God, how do I know that? Well, you know that because of Scripture. And you know a lot of topics where God has clearly communicated his perfect will to us. And so let's just back up a little bit, look at the general principle here. It says, if we request God's perfect will, it will be granted, but not necessarily in our timing and fashion. Right? So if we ask something that's in God's expressed will, it will happen, not necessarily in the same timing as we expect, or in the same means and fashion, but yet it will ultimately take place. Yeah, but what has God expressed his will on? Well, God's expressed his will on a lot of topics. He's told us about that we should worship corporately, do not forsake the assembling of one another. We're to be with each other, so we rub against each other and maybe even sometimes irritate one another. And so we're to be together, but more oftentimes than not, we learn from one another. We're called to be witnesses. You, the Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, you may not be the most effective witnesses, but you will be my witnesses. That is your destiny. That is my will. That's what I want. Has God given us uh, his will for marriage? Well, he's definitely told us who not to marry. Not marry someone of the same sex and not marry someone who we're not equally yoked with. 
right? So he does give us some categories there. He told us about family and defines what family is. He tells us that we're supposed to have an attitude of contentment. We're supposed to express uh, fruit of the spirit. He teaches us about our character and the usage of finances. He, he advocates forgiveness, uh, not just for the person who transgressed against us, but even for our own mental health. Forgiveness is a very positive thing. So therefore, forgive one another. That's not a suggestion. That's actually a command. We forget that. We kind of downsize it sometime. But God actually commands these things. He uses the imperative. He tells us about our use of time, our work, our salvation, how we can be saved, how we can be reconnected back to God through Christ. He teaches us about how to reject temptation in Matthew chapter 4. He teaches us about the difference between love and lust. He teaches us also about future events. And so he tells us about his expressed will on a lot of subjects. He's not shy about that. That's what he's supposed to do. That's what he does. And so, therefore, if we pray in alignment with what he's already expressed, it will most certainly take place. We're going in the right current then. We're going in the right direction. And so we are to pray in his will. Now we can pray things that we just don't know about, but then he may not answer those requests in the way that we hope. But here it is. The place where we usually get tripped up is the timing and manner in which those requests are fulfilled will not always, in fact, probably rarely meet our expectations. Which one is your life? Mine's the second one. (laughs) I think every person in this room, that's your life too. I love this chart because it just says it all. God eventually gets you to the goal But man alive, I didn't realize it was going to be so circuitous and difficult and so many speed bumps. But that's the way it is. God accomplishes goals, but the means and the timing of those accomplished goals are usually out of conformity with our normal expectations. Amen? But if we know that in advance, it helps a lot. In fact, now I'm at the point where I just sit back and smile because I pray something that's like obviously in God's will. It's like, I say, God, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. It's going to be like this, but he'll eventually get there. A good example, something that we've all experienced five years ago is when we built the second phase here. And of course, we didn't know for sure that that was in the will of God. So it was a step of faith. But we uh, did all the planning, did the designs, figured out, okay, so the way we're going to get this thing funded is that people, God's people, are going to give money to it, and then we'll pay for it, right? But yet, that's not the way God did it. God gave us this cell tower, and we sold that and raised some money. But then it turned out we didn't need that money anyway, so then we bought the cell tower lease back. And then money was coming in from all different places. In fact, at the beginning of Bear Creek Bible Church, we got some money from a kind of a new age congregation in Grapevine. They, I'll never forget, I, for the, the, the first money that we got for the first phase was from this new age congregation in Grapevine. And I said to one of our elders, should we take this check or should we send it back? And he said, no, take it. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, when the Israelites left the Egyptians, they plundered the Egyptians. They took everything that wasn't nailed down. They brought it to the promised land with them. So I guess that was a follow-through with that biblical principle, you know. So God does things in different ways. Uh, 
that usually almost always defy our expectations. And so if we begin, if we begin to set our expectations according to our lack of ability to anticipate God, um, then we'll kind of, instead of being frustrated, <clears throat> I think we'll be a little more amused and enjoy it. Say, God, that's your MO. You always defy our expectations, and I can't wait to see and watch how you're going to accomplish this. It's going to be fun. It's going to be enjoyable. And so with full confidence that God will fulfill his promises to Israel, with full confidence, because this is the expressed will over and over and over again. Micah was well-positioned to offer a heartfelt, authentic praise of Yahweh. And that's what he did next. Look at verses 18 through 20. It says there, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Here's inquiry. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. And hurl all our inquiry, iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob. That's another word for Israel. And show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. So who is like Yahweh? And he, he lists like six things here about who God is. Things, things that... He does. This is just his M.O. This is part and parcel of who he is and how he expresses himself. He's in the business of pardoning sin. Um, he does not stay angry. Your earthly father may have been a real angry person, um, but your heavenly father's not like that. So do not superimpose your experience onto your heavenly father. He's righteously angry at a time, but he doesn't stay that way. In fact, he actually enjoys showing mercy. And the Hebrew word there is hesed, which is faithful, loyal, loving kindness. That's what he does. And he will show compassion. Or another word for the Hebrew word there is concern. Um, But he's not just an old softy. He will deal with sin. And that's one of the things that we should like about God. He will not allow sin to go on forever and ever. He will discipline his children and he will judge his enemies. He will deal with sin. He is faithful and he most certainly will keep his word. Let his name be praised for who he is and what he does. See, uh, let scripture interpret scripture. Uh, this already happened. This is what God says about himself as he passed in front of his servant Moses and he proclaimed to Moses, he said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty and punished. This is pretty much the same thing that Micah said like 500 years later. And so what's the principle here that we see? What's the observation? God's actions based on his character is really at the end of the day all we have, but it is more than enough. <laughs> everything else will burn up. Everything else will fall to the side. But the only thing we have is God, his character, 
and his actions. But they are more than enough. God's deeds, which are sourced in his attributes, it is the only really good news that we have. And so that's why, my friends, it doesn't really matter what you know. It matters who you know. Do you know him? He is unique. He is transcendent and imminent at the same time. He is above and apart from creation, but yet at the same time, he is very much engaged in our every movement and thought. He defeats sin and death. He gives us what we need freely, grace. He deals with sin. And he also wants to be known and compared to all the other gods in the marketplace of deities. This God is completely unique. Even the adherents of these other religions and faiths will admit that this is what their God is all about. And the God of Scripture is completely different, totally unique. That's why Micah says, who is like this God? And the answer is no one else. Do not ever say, oh, yeah, oh, we all follow one God. Please don't ever let me hear you say that because even the adherents of these other faiths will say, oh, yeah, yeah, your God's completely different. We don't believe in him, but we know from what Scripture says that that's not our God. And so you have the God of Islam, the one God, Allah, merciful and just, but not gracious and also not knowable. He's not really too concerned about knowing you well, but the God of Scripture is That's the build-out. That's why he has set in motion a plan to restore us to himself, Israel, as well as the church. I want to know them. I don't need to know them, but I still want to anyway. The God of Hinduism, the gods of Hinduism, 330 million of them, impersonal, metaphysical, and unknowable. Buddhism, really, it's... A non-theistic religion. Buddha is not God. He's just a man. Enough said. Mormonism. God is flesh and blood, limited in power and knowledge, changeable. And there are many gods. In fact, if you are a good Mormon man, you can actually become a god yourself. Jehovah's Witness that Jehovah is not all present. He's a spirit. He's not triune. They reject the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ is a creature and not deity. And the Holy Spirit is not a person, but he's just a force of Jehovah. You might say, well, atheism and secularism, they don't believe in a God. But yet everybody has a God, even if it's themselves. (laughs) It could be themselves, a human government, money, or a lifestyle. Everybody gets their security and their significance from something, even if the default setting is themselves. That's the definition of a God. Whoever we apply all worth to, that I need this thing because I need to be secure and I need to feel a sense of value. And so whatever we get that from is the thing or the person that we worship. And then there's biblical Christianity. The stark, standalone, standalone worldview. Totally different. Absorb that, my friends. Let your minds marinate on that. 
Let your souls soak in that grand truth that when Micah asked 2,700 years ago, and many of the psalmists asked the same question, who is like our God? The answer is so obvious that it is no one else. He is unique. All of your blessings, all of your hope, everything good that you grasp for is tied to the attributes and the identity of the God of Scripture. All the other gods fall far short. And so, let His name be praised. Amen? Let His name be praised. You see, in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter what you know, what information you have, how clever and smart you are. That does not matter in the least. But what truly does matter is who you know. And do you know Him? Have you placed your faith in His Son? Because He is the one who has paid for the penalty of your sin and mine. And by a simple transfer of trust from something else to Christ. Or maybe if you come from a non-religious background, that trust goes from nothing else to Christ and his work on the cross. You place your faith in him. And from that moment, from that spark, you are ignited with life for the first time in your existence. Your spirit is born again. You don't feel it, but it is a truth. You're given life. And then you begin the process of knowing him. It does not matter what you know. It matters who you know. And so do you know him? And then for all of us who do know him, are you on the path of knowing him better? Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've done already. It is quite impressive, but you're not done yet. We are in the some middle point of human history. And so, Father, I pray and we look forward to your expressed will. And I pray that more and more we'll kind of put aside our agendas and we'll get into your agenda and um, say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we also echo the words of Micah about who is like you, and the answer is no one else. And we love you for it. We adore you. We respect you, and we want to know you better. And thank you for wanting to know us, because we need you really badly. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And together, God's people said, Amen.